So I think this literature on tribalism in some ways just looks at the two ends of the political spectrum. And it's true also of the literature on social media. We know that the proportion of the population that is really fixated on social media is far from being the majority. And those who post systematically are a tiny, tiny group of of the population as a whole. And we make a big deal out of this. When we hear a highly respected evidence-based researcher from Harvard University remind us that our views are being influenced by an extreme minority, we scratch our heads. We ask ourselves, really? Could we be so easily subjected to an availability bias or proportionality bias? And the answer, Kurt, is yes, really. We are biased in these ways. And yes, there are portions of the media that get a lot of attention by promoting extreme views. Our world is just not nearly as bad as the extremists in the world would like us to believe it is. That doesn't mean it's perfect because there are plenty of issues that need tending to. But in this episode, we're going to discuss some of them. Yeah, we will. And the world we live in could be improved by how we see each other. And by see, I mean recognize in a meaningful human way, not just seeing someone that you've seen before and you recognize them. Right, Kurt. This discussion, really, it's all about the quest for respect. Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers and other interesting people to unlock the mysteries of the human condition using a behavioral science lens. Our guest today is Michelle Lamont. Michelle is a professor of sociology and African-American studies. She is also the Robert I. Goldman Professor of European Studies at Harvard University. In this episode, we'll cover some very important topics with Michelle. We'll talk about the divisiveness of the media and how it impedes our ability to see each other. We'll discuss the impact of neoliberalism. Which Michelle will define in our conversation and is something that you should be aware of. Yeah, neoliberalism may not be what you think it is, so listen carefully. We'll also cover how the lack of recognition impacts mental health. And before we get to an interesting discussion on Leonard Cohen and other Canadian folk singers, by the way, that Tim couldn't remember at the time, (laughs) and I have to chuckle about that, we will talk about how generational differences are playing out in the world regarding recognition, especially the way Gen Z is striving for recognition in ways that Xers and Boomers could never have imagined. Yeah. So with that, we invite you to sit back with a cool pour of seeing each other and enjoy our conversation with Michelle Lamont. Michelle Lamont, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. And we need to know right away, do you prefer coffee or tea? Tea. Without caffeine. With oh, without caffeine. caffeine. So do you? Well, it depends the time of the day. In the morning, I have a cup of coffee, but at night, I have a cup of tea. Oh, okay. But in general, you prefer tea <laughs> overall. I like both, but you know, the first answer that came to my mind is tea, so it must be telling. <laughs> there is something about that initial response, right? It's That's like right. oh. Never really thought about the the difference, which one I prefer, but I will go with tea. Yeah. yeah, And then I thought, actually, I drink both. I drink both. I drink both as well. Tim is purely a tea drinker because he can't stand coffee. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Next question, Michelle. Dinner with your favorite athlete or favorite musician? Which would you prefer? Ah, musician by a long shot. I don't follow uh, sports very much. You know, it's not my thing. Does anyone come to mind? Among the musicians? Mm -hmm. Well, that's, you know, I'm a big fan of The Doors. Oh. Jim Morrison, although he's dead. Uh, You know, so I would say that. We could have a seance and have have Jim (laughs) come back, and that would be a really wonderful kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Okay, uh, true or false, racism in the United States is 
overblown. And if the media would just a bit more relaxed, it would barely exist at all. There we go. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that more, I'm sure. And here is yeah. the last, the very last um, speed round question that we have for you. Is it true that one way to overcome divisiveness in our world is to begin seeing other people for who they are? People, just people. Yeah, it's part of it. <laughs> just part of it, but it is a big yeah. part, at least. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, with that, we wanted to start um, by just saying that uh, seeing others, how recognition works and how it can heal a divided work Mm -hmm. is not just a book with important lessons. It's also just a really great read. And we are very, very lucky to have you on today to talk about that book. Um, Just to start, can you give us a a peek into who you were writing this book for um, and how you started down the journey of writing this book? Well, I decided to write it during the Trump era where I felt a little depressed and I felt that a lot of people around me were hopeless because there had been, you know, a growing opening, I feel, of most advanced industrial societies, integrating immigrants, openness toward gays and also toward immigrants. And then, the, you know, during the the 2016 presidential campaign, you know, Trump started bashing Latinos. And I felt like, wow, the the uh, moral arc of history that Obama was talking about is not going in the direction it's supposed to go. So I thought I would write a book really to help understand, help people, the general reader understand why it's happening now and how it's happening. So if you remember the political scientists, Daniel Ziblatt and Levitsky, Steve Levitsky wrote this book, How Democracy Dies, which was a very good explanation for the general public of the ways in which democracy was threatened. And I felt like there's room for a similar kind of book to explain how the circle of who's viewed as worthy in our society can be broadened or narrowed and really to give people the analytical tools. So the audience is truly the general public. I explain in this book things that, you know, most social scientists know, like what's a narrative. But there I really was trying to break it down. You know, we talked to Robert Livingston and uh, Harvard, you know, Kennedy School and his book about uh, the conversation, he said, was kind of like Robin DiAngelo's white fragility story focused on really he's hoping for white readers. He, he was he's kind of going for for people, for white people to read that book to some degree. Was was that also your motivation or not really, you know, the the book says like recognition, everyone earns for dignity and respect. And I was trying to help people understand that whether you're a MAGA or, a, you know, trans person, the, the desire for recognition is the same. But I would say if among the mainstream public, there's one group that I feel I'm better equipped to speak to might be the parents of Gen Z's, mm. like the cross-generational divide, because I'm a boomer and a lot of boomers are really puzzled about the pronouns and the unisex bathrooms. And there's a feeling like, what's the problem with these young people? And because the book draws on 80 interviews with Gen Z's, I kind of, and, you know, I really came to realize how many of the aspirations of the boomers, like getting a house with a white picket fence is meaningless for young Mm. people. So in some ways, I think the book is particularly good at bridging the the divide, the generational divide, and trying to make both groups understand each other a little better. In the introduction, you actually say, you decide, and I'm quoting here, "I I decided to write a book about people who make hope possible and accessible a book that yeah. seeks to understand how we can broaden the circle of people who matter. And I love that concept, uh, this idea of about people who make hope possible and accessible. And so it, when you think about that, is is the intent then to not just educate, but to really in um, get people to make take action as, as a result of this? Absolutely. And the penultimate chapter of the book is very much like, telling the general reader what we can all do to, to uh, you know, to find hope. And the book itself focuses mostly on what I call change agents, people who are whose job it is to create new narratives. And when I was uh, depressed during the Trump era, I started reading on what social scientists say about hope. And they say that uh, 
What's really important is to be able to project yourself into the future in a way that is positive, and that's facilitated by the availability of of narratives. So it's not only what's happening internally in our head, it's very much how is the environment in which we live providing us messages that can really bolster our social resilience, if you will. So it's not an individualist uh, solution in this sense. It's really not about pull yourself by your britches and demonstrate grit. It's more (laughs) like we're all creating together a society where there's many visions of possible futures. And these visions are really important in giving us the ability to imagine an alternative future that may be uh, hopeful. And I think that's also very much what we saw during Black Lives Matter or, you know, the Me Too movement, a lot of these recognition claims that are associated with social movement were associated with denouncing past injustice and saying, you know, we can change society together. But it's not only a history about social movement, it's also about what neighborhoods can do together. It's interesting, and I love how you talk about both the narrative aspect of that, but also that it's contextually based, that, that it is the narrative that is surrounding us uh, mm-hmm. that can inform how we show up and, and our behaviors and our actions based upon that. Mm-hmm. Wondering, given the divisiveness within the United States and kind of the two separate worlds almost that our political system has kind of divided into, where the narrative that is heard by different people on different sides of the aisle is actually in my belief, is two very different narratives. You can see the same thing that is happening in our in our society. And if you go out on Fox News, it's going to be spun in one way. If you go out on MSNBC, it's going to be spun in another way. So how, how do we overcome, and, and I, maybe I'm asking too much of you to, to answer this question, but how, how do we overcome when you're talking about narratives if, if we're hearing different narratives based upon you know, some predisposed, you know, separation that we are stuck in? Well, I think that the focus on the media in some ways forces us to see more polarization than there is. Mm -hmm. I think as we all move through society, through our network, through our workplace, through our neighborhood, there's tons of people with whom we kind of can very well coexist while being indifferent to or just being tolerant with, you know, like I may not be, uh, I may not want all my neighbors to be my closest friend, but we live peacefully on our street, you know. So I think this literature on tribalism in some ways just looks at the two ends of the political spectrum. And it's true also of the literature on social media. We know that the portion of the population that is really fixated on social media is far from being the majority. Mm. And those who post systematically are a tiny, tiny group of of the population as a whole. And we make a big deal out of this. Okay, Fox News has a huge audience. But on the other hand, the large majority of American citizens get their news from the local news on yeah. TV at six o'clock. And that's not Fox News. Yeah. So I think we really have to think about the media ecology in a much more multidimensional way that if we just focus on Fox News and MSNBC. You know, it's like literally taking two points at the end of the spectrum and that's the whole story. No, I think I like the donut model instead of just saying there's people who are in and people are out. If you think about the donut or the bagel, there's a huge section in the middle that are people who are indifferent or easygoing or tolerant and they don't care. They just do their thing, you know. So I think that really helps us put things back in context. And they're underrepresented. Totally. And I'll see, think of the 40% of Americans who don't vote, right? I mean, some of them don't vote because they feel totally alienated, but a lot of them are undecided. A lot of them don't have strong ideological commitments. So, yeah, there's a lot of media attention on words like uh, structural racism and systemic racism. And I was wondering if you could just educate our listeners a little bit. What are those terms? What, What do they actually mean? And maybe give us an example of where they show up in our world. Okay, so structural racism refers not to the micro 
face-to-face interactions where people would really insult each other or treat each other badly. It's more like reference to the system of institution that we live in that has led, for instance, that it's much harder for African-American historically to get mortgages. And that was discrimination that was baked into the banking system. Or how, you know, if you look at school system in Boston, for instance, there's 32 elementary schools. There's only two of them that are working well, and they're the middle class school. So there's a real problem with funding schools where it's the local taxes that support the schools and everyone who has money moves out of Boston, which means that the Boston schools are terrible, whereas the suburban schools are excellent. So that would be an example if we didn't have this funding system. With the concentration of African-Americans within Boston, the Boston, the, the African-American kids would have much better education. New Jersey, for instance, passed a law that forces the more uh, wealthy uh, districts to fund the schools in the less wealthy districts. We don't have this in Massachusetts. So that's a really good example, I think. It's like there's a lot of ways that our society is structured in such a way that we're just not functioning in a level playing field. And, you know, it's a society that's based in equality of opportunity, not equality of outcomes. But at the same time, if our social arrangements are such that it really, dis, you know, privileges one group and penalize another systematically, then it's not a fair society. I, I just heard, and, and I apologize for any listeners because I might be getting this actual quote wrong, but I just heard in Texas, of all places, they changed the way that they are placing people in advanced math. And so if you score in the top quartile or 50%, that's the, that I'm not sure of, um, you automatically get placed into an advanced math. And now you can opt out of that. Um, mm-hmm. But what they saw with this change is that the percentages of Latino and African-American kids that are now in advanced math significantly increased because before it was dependent upon teacher evaluation and different things. And again, to your point, I don't think that they were necessarily thinking about this from the perspective of, hey, I'm out, you know, I'm 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 acting in a racist manner and in kind of who I'm putting forth to to take an advanced math, but it's kind of, well, they're not going to do as well. So therefore I'm going to keep them out and kind of more of that narrative. So Given what you're saying about the Massachusetts schools and given what you're saying about, you know, um, what I just talked about, is the way of overcoming it one way, not the way, one way is to try to root out those types of systems and put better processes and systems in place? I think the solution has really to it needs to be multidimensional. Okay. So what you just described about the teachers is true across the nation. Actually, there's a sociologist named Peter Harvey who just published really great papers in American Sociological Review exactly on this, on how teachers tend to be much harsher when they look at students of color. And even if a uh, school of education now are really trying to get teachers to perceive themselves how they are reproducing racism, there's still an enormous amount of work to do. And that's tied not only to race, but also to class. So I think there's the attack on, you know, how do you address um, microaggression? It's not only calling someone the N-word, it's underestimating often or treating a group as invisible. It's neglect, you know, and it's much harder to confront neglect than to confront aggression, you know. So, and this is Something also, parents need to be equipped to know how to deal with this, you know, to say, you're systematically underestimating my kid. And a lot of African-American parents are struggling with that in their interaction with schools. So also raising awareness in the public that that's also a form of racism if it's systematically directed to one group, right? Yeah. Uh, To what degree do you think this is also integrated with neoliberalism? Yeah, well, the argument of the book is in part, what what is neoliberalism? It's, you know, the transformation of our economic systems since, you know, the Reagan era and in the UK, the Margaret Thatcher era was really to use the state to maximize profit. So all the barriers to growing profit were removed and the state became increasingly the tool to help people make money. Uh, whereas in previous era, it also had a much stronger function of redistribution to the welfare state. 
But this comes with also a model of who's the ideal person that we should all aim to be. And the neoliberal scripts of self, as I call it in the book, is the ideal worker. That's the uh, person who uh, is very competitive, really tries to make money, uh, tries to be always self-reliant. So it's called privatization of risk. They think that we should all just carry our weight and not depend on anyone ever, but also not help anyone either. So it's a very social Darwinist system. And this set of values has become really hegemonic. Well, hegemonic being very dominant and widely diffused over the last uh, several decades. So there's a sociologist named Jonathan Meisch who wrote a wonderful paper that shows meritocracy, which we all think is good. You know, it's rewarding people for their hard work. But the problem with meritocracy is also that we tend to downplay how much uh, people who who live in neighborhoods with great schools are really privileged, and that's tied to class and it's tied to race and gender. And also, you know, the family, it's not only the neighborhood, it's also the family you grew up in and what your parents give you in terms of advantages. If you have parents who, like me, has a PhD, of course your kids start with a huge advantage. And this meritocracy has gained enormous popularity. Jonathan Misch does a study of 25 countries, advanced industrial societies like, you know, the U.S. and Canada, but also Denmark and many European countries. And it shows that between 1930 and 2010, this neoliberalism has gained enormously in popularity. So as you make your way through society, you realize the people who are most valued are people who are very successful economically and who have professional degrees. And it means this goes hand in hand with a lot of working class people feeling like they're regarded as losers. So you have like a bifurcation in how worthy people feel. So the the book is also a call to action about this. Instead of having one single social hierarchy based on money and education, instead we should have many different narratives that tell us who is worthy, that allows for many more people to feel worthy, whether they're primarily caregivers, you know, or uh, spiritual people. And, you know, also to gain awareness of how the American dream and meritocracy is pushing us toward just appreciating one set of people, which is, I think, deeply unfair, given how unequal our system is. It reminds me of Ayn Rand, and I, yeah. I, was, <laughs> I, yeah. I thought that that had died out, but it uh, obviously um, it, it hasn't um, when you think no, about think that. It's quite pervasive. Yeah. You bring up this really key point in the book about changing hearts and minds. And I thought that that was really uh, a key aspect of this. So if for our listeners, if, if you're if I, I'm a listener of this podcast, what, what do you think? What would you tell them? What do they need to know about changing hearts and minds? And and how do we go about achieving that? OK, well, this is multi-layered. I'll start with the Ford Foundation, which is one of the largest foundation in the U.S. And uh, Uh, its uh, president, Darian Walker, decided to launch an attack on inequality when he became president. And he said this approach has four pillars, and one of them is changing hearts and minds. For him, it meant using narratives to attack inequality. So for instance, you one example is the Ford Foundation funded the film Maids, which is you can see on Netflix, which is about indigenous domestic workers in Mexico City who work for a middle class family. But the film is not focused on the middle class family. It's focused on the maids. One of them gets pregnant. She has to get an abortion. And you see her really as a human being struggling with the decision. And it's a very important film because I think it challenges the stereotype, well, the notion that domestic workers don't matter and they're just mm. in the background. They're never the focus of the story. And it it, it presents you, these women, as three-dimensional, multi-dimensional people, and you really move away from the stereotype that they don't matter. And they, it, the film also humanizes them. And the film was co-produced, was, again, you know, informed by the work of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, which is a very important union supporting domestic workers, which is a group that's extremely exploited. Many of them are undocumented immigrants. And uh, so it was what the Ford Foundation put did this put create a structure that would really and provide the resources that were necessary to scale up this narrative, this more complicated narrative about what 
Bazaar. And the film got won an Oscar and was watched very, very broadly. So that's an example of what, you know, like if you want to fight inequality, it's not enough to just redistribute resources. Mm. And that's the solution that often economists propose. And uh, this focus on narratives is really about, no, we need to reconsider what people think about the poor. Do they blame the poor primarily as lazy people who cannot carry their weight? Or how much uh, do we also understand low-income people as people who are, you know, less equipped to deal with uh, desindustrialization or, you know, the hiccups that the economy will unavoidably face, you know? So it's it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like it's it's not just the economic redistribution, it's changing the story we tell ourselves exactly. about these other, and we tell others about these people, exactly. and really exactly. getting to know them as a human, as a person, as opposed to the other, the they, exactly. uh, which again, you talked about at the very beginning of this, that you kind of were started this book because of your reaction to Trump and coming in and he's running again. And some of the, the rhetoric that he is stating is again, I, my perception is that he's pushing that again, Mm -hmm. other narrative of the stereotypical immigrant coming in, Mm -hmm. you know, they're murderers, they're, you know, thieves, et cetera. So given that that microphone is so large, how do we, how, how how do we as individuals who are just going about our everyday lives, how can we change that? How, how do we influence that narrative and, and start impacting hearts and minds of, of, of others? Well, you have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do, but our, our list, not all of our listeners do. So we yeah, might reach, many, you, know. you know. Many people have tools for diffusing alternative ideas. This morning, um, I was listening on the radio, there's a growing number of attacks against uh, immigrants in, in Boston, in the in Massachusetts, like far-right groups that are demonstrating in front of hotels where uh, Latino immigrants are housed. And, uh, you know, one can think that's, okay, you may see that in Texas or in Portland, Oregon, or, uh, you know, in Oregon, where you have a lot of right, far-right groups, but Massachusetts stands as a pretty liberal state. So the fact that it's discussed <laughs> on the radio, I didn't know that was happening in uh, in my state. Wow. And I think, you know, people who study social movements say there's always movements and counter movements. So I think the public sphere, the discussion we have about groups is something very dynamic and there's tons of people feeding it. It's not only the social media. And I think the kind of work you do, but also the kind of work that religious leaders are doing, you know, I cannot think of any better solution than, you know, foundations throwing a lot of money at scaling up messages that are more inclusive. And, you know, in some ways, I think Trump has captured an audience. It's a seizable audience. But, you know, a lot of them are working class and a lot of working class people say, well, you have to treat people like people. Mm, You know, I wrote, I published a book in 2000 titled The Dignity of Working Man. And that's probably the thing that stood out most in what they say. So how about engaging them around? On one hand, you say, let's treat people as people. And on the other hand, you don't treat these people as people. You know, you just reject them. And Trump is so manipulative. I did the paper that was published on his 2016 presidential addresses. There was 73 of them. And in that paper, we show how very systematically he aims to appeal to workers by telling them, okay, um, you're losing your, your place in American society and it's because of globalization and it's because of immigrants and it's because of Latinos who are rapists. So you can just see how he's on the one hand propping the workers up while putting down the um, mostly mostly uh, immigrants. But the counter narrative is this is a country grounded and based on immigration. What has made this country is, and he is a son of immigrant too, you know? So I think it's not at all hard to think of the counter narrative. And a lot of American, a lot of new immigrants who come here come here because of the American dream. They believe in entrepreneurship. That's what motivates them. Immigrants are far from being rapists and dishonest people. A lot of them are extremely hardworking, you know, many more, much more hardworking than a lot of Americans who don't want to take the jobs that immigrants take. So I think it's not hard to know what's the alternative message, but to really 
fight back against this uh, social movement, I think, is the answer, frankly. I don't cannot think of other answers. I, I think that that's great. We, we do need to uh, simply be willing to speak it, to, uh, to, to notice it and to address it. At, at its its simplest uh, form, uh, Michelle, we, we we couldn't agree more. You know, there's you also brought up the term uh, the recognition chain, which is yeah. a, a really really cool term. Can you tell our listeners about the recognition chain and why it's important? Well, the example I just gave about the Ford Foundation connecting with. Uh, this uh, National Alliance of Domestic Workers to change the narrative by making a film. That's an example. And these kinds of connections exist. You know, I'll give you just one other example from um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is also an important foundation. The person who's in charge of VP research there used to be in charge of uh, earthquake prevention in L.A., And he would put big billboard telling people, get to know your neighbors. You will need them one day in a context where obviously everyone expects a big earthquake to come. So, and they then created a huge program called the Culture of Health, which is not about, you know, you should take your blood pressure every morning. It's about how do we create the structures that our society needs in order to be bolstering social relations that we need. We know that networks and being in contact with others has a very positive impact on subjective well-being. So cultivating solidarity is good for everyone, just like seeing homeless people lying in the street is bad for all of us because we know that those human beings are not being treated humanly. And it, it hurts all of us because who wants to live in a society like that? So having more collective, like I'm very struck again to brag about Boston, this is a city where you don't find that many homeless people lying on the sidewalk compared to Philadelphia or LA or San Francisco. But what Boston has, okay, we have the bad weather, which means that many homeless people don't want to live here. I'm not discounting that, but there's also a very old uh, Catholic rich community who really take charity very seriously. Charity in some ways is not great because it's viewed as paternalistic. But they're deeply invested in funding, for instance, the Pine Street Inn, which is the largest homeless shelter in Boston, which has, as a philosophy, housing first. So you house the drug addicts and you house the alcoholics because you know that once they have the stability of housing, they'll get better. So there's a lot of structure that have been put in place that results with Boston. You don't have the same feeling in Boston that you have when you walk in downtown Philadelphia. So, but that's a community achievement, you know, it doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from the deep root that this elite has in the community and their commitment to not having that kind of society here. And why it's not happening in LA, I have no idea. Maybe it's because they're afraid that if they start giving money to homeless people, a lot of the homeless people will go there and that might not happen in Boston. But well, it's, the differences are very noticeable. And it kind of highlights this idea of the narrative in Boston is different than the narrative in yeah. those other cities that you talked about, bringing that back into the fold here. You focus a whole chapter on the impact of Gen Z, and then it's at the end uh, of the book. So why why spend a whole chapter? What is, what's special about this post-millennial demographic that's so important? Yeah, well, you know, they follow the the, millenn- the millennials. The millennials started working around the time of the Great Depression in 2008, and they hit the job market that was really bad. And they quickly realized they were not going to get houses. They were not going to live the dream of the white picket fence. So they had to come up with alternative dreams. And that's also very much the case with the Gen Zs, who, when they look at the life of their parents, boomers such as my, myself, they think you guys have really screwed up because the the environment is a huge mess. And it's a huge mess because you wanted big cars and you wanted individual houses and you wanted grass on your lawns, all these, and you wanted to eat your steak. So a life organized around what they call the hedonistic treadmill of consumption for them is a total disaster. And they just are very, very upset about it. And but they have to come up and they've also it's a group that has had a lot of mental health problem in the middle of COVID. You know, their life at the time when they wanted to move out of their parents' house 
and lead their own life. They couldn't because of COVID, many of them. So they've had to come up with their own dreams. In my book, I argue that for them, inclusion, creating a society where you can live uh, your best life now, not in 20 years, and that living the best life is to live in an environment where people treat each other more with more integrity humanly and in a very inclusive manner. So, and I've seen it as I teach Gen Z's all the time, like for them, sexual harassment, uh, you know, the pronouns, for them, the pronouns is enormously important because it's a way of acknowledging how people self-define and how they want to be recognized by others. So for the reader who don't know, I'm sure your listener know that this is about, you know, using a them pronoun, that's only he and she and giving. So for instance, this year, the American Sociological Association, typically every year we have our label that says Michelle Lamont, Harvard University. Well, this year, instead of the name of our institution, we had the pronouns. And it was very interesting because the old timers, people in my age group were <laughs> upset. But the young people felt like it's just not fair. People who teach at Padang University, people see the name of their university and no one wants to talk to them. So therefore, let's use pronouns, which is exactly what Gen Z's want, you know, as a way also to affirm that not everyone has a binary sexual identity. And that extends to toilets, the unisex toilets. But I think many boomers just don't understand at all what this is about. And once you understand, for me at least, that they are rejecting the American dream and they want to create the good society today, and that involves for them, for instance, they're, they find absolutely repugnant that a 35-year-old man would have a 16-year-old girlfriend. Yeah. Whereas when I was young, that was you know not okay, but people were not denounced and condemned, whereas that generation has zero, zero patience for this. So they're extremely sensitive to power imbalance. And the, for them, it's a basic question of people turning uh, a blind eye at what's happening around them. And I think this is really what motivates them. And they are creating narrative of hopes by pushing us also boomers to face, <laughs> you know, they, there's a lot of confront intergenerational confrontation around these questions across. Yeah. Michelle, I find that really fascinating. I have a 13-year-old and a 17-year-old. And yeah. what I find amazing, because I'm a I, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm a little bit below the boomers here. Where for me it is this changing of paradigms and shifting for them, it's what they've lived with. So this idea of non-binary, the pronouns that they use, but even sexual orientation, you know, it and yeah. and it doesn't have. It's just every day. It, this is just the world they live in, and so they don't they don't see that. And I I find it really interesting. My my son had a friend who's uh you know went transgender, and he one day came in and said this new you know like this name of this person, and I'm going, who is that? And he, oh well, that was you know George, mm-hmm. and now it's you know I'm changing names, so I'm not and, and yeah. you know, but you know now it's a uh, you know. Chelsea, you know, yeah, and I'm exactly. like, and for him, it was no big deal. It, it, exactly. it didn't phase him. Exactly. And I, I, I talked to my wife about this. If that would have happened or anything even close to that would have happened in my high school, mm-hmm. it would have been, uh, administrations so, yeah. would have gotten involved, everything. And, yeah, yeah. and today it just isn't. And I think to that point, the narratives that they're hearing, that they're seeing, that mm-hmm. they're telling themselves, that they're seeing in the social media that they're involved with, mm-hmm. lend itself to your point of of hope. Because I think mm-hmm. that it is becoming a more inclusive worldview, at least with with that uh, generation. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a question out of that. So, but <laughs> I, I, I so agree with you. And one reason that they take this so seriously is because it is their source of hope. That's why I think they get so pissed at the boomers who laugh at it because, no, that's the society we want to create today together. And by the way, there's a psychologist named uh, Jean Twinge who wrote a book on generations and she has a chapter on the Gen Z's. And she shows in there, I'm very surprised to discover this, that 30% of the young women in that generation are bisexual or they self-define as bisexual. Some of them may never have had sex, but... That's their identity. And that's an enormous proportion wow. when you think of my generation. No one bisexual were certainly not seeing it. So it's also, as you say, their lived reality. You know, the, the, uh, 
and that goes with people are people. Like it doesn't matter if you're a male or female, you know, if I, if I think you're a beautiful person and if I'm attracted to you, I'm not going to prevent myself from embracing who you are, whether sexually or otherwise, which in some ways is very much in line with this inclusion thing. I wonder how much, uh, to what degree that uh, things change. And I, I, I'm thinking of a couple of uh, friends of mine who were born in Liberia, uh, came to the United States in their uh, around 10 years old, 10 to 15 years uh-huh. old. And I met them in their early 20s. And in those days, they they just thought of racism as just being just the silliest thing. It's like, it just doesn't exist. Because if you just want it, you just go out and get it. And now in their 40s, they're absolutely fatigued by not being seen. Does that ring familiar to you? Yeah, of course. And there's a literature on this showing that African immigrants and West Indian immigrants, when they come to the U.S., they think of African Americans as people who who lack the willpower yeah. to really, you know, get over the humps and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Whereas, and but with time, they realize that the racial hierarchy in the U.S. is really strongly institutionalized and then also Many Americans don't make the difference between West Indians and or Africans. So they experience racism all the time. And they spend a lot of time telling people, you know, I come from Guyana or I come from Jamaica as a way to really distinguish them. Or many African-American also, like there's a famous book by the psychologist Claude Steele titled Whistling Vivaldi. And he's a middle-class, upper-middle-class university professor. And he tells how he walks and whistles Vivaldi in neighborhoods where he fears that people will perceive him as a low-class African-American. So these distinctions are also made through class, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just an enormous amount of energy for victims of racism to try to navigate the environment so that they're not suffering from microaggression. But what you're mentioning about your friends from Liberia, it's quite well known that Immigrants have to get to be socialized into racism to, and then they're much less likely to say, I'm not like these African-Americans. So things change as four decades living in the country teaches yeah. them. You know? All right, Michelle, I, I can tell that Tim is itching to talk about music, but I have one last question before uh, he gets that opportunity. So your book is called Seeing Others. And so if you had to give our listeners one last kind of comment on what they can do or what is the thing that they should take away about seeing others? What would that one nugget be? Well, I think the polarization between groups are worse when people think of others as belonging to categories, Mm. like women who think, oh, all men are rapists, you know, and then to step back and think of the person as a person instead of a group member, I think helps. And often as we lead our lives, we're not primarily seeing ourselves as group members. We experience the world as individual. So I think becoming more aware that these things are fluid, you know, and also I'm quite critical of the tribalism issue because it says it's in our nature to really like the in-group and dislike the out-group. But in fact, we're members of many groups and the degree to which we're members of a group varies enormously. I'm not, I'm French-Canadian. I don't get up every morning saying I'm French-Canadian. My identity <laughs> is French-Canadian. It's when I'm there or when I talk with my siblings. Or So I think we need to think of our identities as really context-dependent. So th- that's important. Boy, if, and, uh, yeah, yeah. There's, I'm just going to add one more thing. There's with this big mental health crisis, it's hurting also the Harvard students. So there was a newsletter circulated to the parents recently saying your kids are really having a hard time and what can you do to make them feel better? It says you have to treat your kids like if they really matter. And they matter not only to you, but they matter also to the other students. So they're not just performance machine. They are human beings that you care about and that other people care about. And that's really one of the things that help people get over the mental health traumas that that generation has experienced because of COVID and also because of all the parental pressures to succeed. So that's a piece of advice that I think makes sense. Uh, uh, Michelle, I'm interested in in knowing that if you had to spend a year on a desert island and you were able to choose two musical catalogs, what what two musical artists catalogs would you choose to take with you? 
Well, I was thinking, I knew you were going to ask that question. So I think. Oh, how did you know? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When I was a graduate student in Paris in the late 70s, that's probably the period in my life where I listened most to most music. Mm -hmm. And those were the days where Patti Smith was really very, very high. And the doors. So it's those are baby, you know, music from my young adulthood that has really stayed with me. And to this day, I'm not a huge music consumer, in part because a lot of the music I know, I learned when I was young, you know, and it's never played here. Like my family even doesn't know about those groups because I grew up (laughs) in the Francophone world. But that's certainly two of the groups that I'm really fond of. Interesting. So growing up in the Francophone world, uh, did that influence uh, any of the music that you listened to when you were in your teens? Totally, totally. Because there was a period where... The Quebec nationalist movement was very strong. So we had the equivalent of the folk singers Mm -hmm. of America, but they were the folk singers of the nationalist movement. And they were also singing, you know, peace and love and uh, uh, let's build a better world together, if you will. But those are all names that would probably mean nothing to you or to most of your listeners. But there was also a connection with France, you know, with a lot of great folk singers there. So I guess it's a generation that really appreciated folk singers yeah. who were also poets, I think, you know, like the Leonard Cohen type or. Um, yeah. Or uh, Gordon Lightfoot a little bit later. Uh, it, it's certainly uh, the, gosh, his, his name is escaping me now. The, uh, the, uh, the composer of four strong winds and uh, you know, great yeah. folk music that came out of Canada that absolutely had. Yeah. Uh, sort of a existentialism that you could trace back to France, probably. Yeah, exactly. And you see, like, because it was a period when the Francophone and the Anglophone world were very separate. I don't know that many Anglophone groups, like Four Star Winds, they might be extremely well known, but there's so much that I don't know because my cultural world was totally oriented toward the Francophone world. So I know Leonard Cohen simply because it was in in Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, good enough. Um, I, I, I think that it was uh, Ian Tyson. That, that's who that, who that was. Uh, actually. Ian Tyson. Yeah. I'll yeah. check him out. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, uh, it is absolutely a pleasure to have this discussion with you. And of course, we're leaving three pages of questions on the table. But we are grateful for your time, Michelle. And we're grateful for the, the work that you've created uh, as well. Oh, well, thank you so much for your interest. And thank you for taking the time to read this book. I really appreciate it. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Michelle, have a free-flowing conversation, and groove on whatever else comes into our unrecognizable brains, Tim. We just are not <laughs> recognized. You and me, we go kind of silently into the into the night. Silently into the void, aren't we? Yes. 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 Yeah, sort of without... Uh... Who are you? Yeah, well, we need recognition, you and me. We need some recognition, and and we're just not getting it. Uh, (laughs) Yes, Um, but maybe not the way that Michelle is referring to it. Oh, that, that, that's probably true. Very, very true. Yeah, so that was an interesting conversation, man. It really, really was. She was just fantastic. I, you know, was excited to, to read her book, which I thought was terrific, and the, her, you know, her thoughts are just so well organized and thought through and researched. And it's like, man, I just love talking to people like that. Yeah. So well she was a great organized, person. researched and everything that we're not. So there you go. Pretty, that's, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that, All right. So, it. so an interesting piece, and I think this is a really key piece of what Michelle was talking about is that the need for recognition and not the recognition that you and I talk about, the trophies and the awards and right. all of those things, uh, the, this recognition about who you are as a person, uh, the the Ari Krulinski uh, striving for significance type of recognition yeah, yeah. is universal, that um, people are people, you know? Yeah, yeah, this is, and I think we could spend a lot of time on just the need for recognition uh, just so that we see each other. But when she said that whether you're MAGA or trans, everyone is looking for recognition. Yeah. Right. And that, like that's, that's a really big thought to, to kind of get a hold of because 
it's easy for us, for any individual to get into that mode of, I'm looking for recognition, but you're just an asshole, you know? <laughs> well, like, no. Um, and, and and you're right. This is like Ari uh, Kruglansky's striving for significance idea in that everybody is, is, is in that mode. And I feel like these two ideas uh, kind of harmonize nicely, right? That, um, that when we think about striving for significance, it's a, it's an awful lot like the quest for respect as, it is. as Ms. Michelle puts it. And I love this idea that mega are trans. Everyone is looking for recognition because when she said that, what it does is it just switches the way that you view somebody and that asshole on the other side of whatever divide you're on, mm-hmm. political, social, whatever, all of a sudden their behaviors, their words may not be appropriate, may not be right, but you understand a little bit more about them because of it. You understand yeah. that there is a need to look good within their own tribe, that they are hunting for that recognition that we all are striving for, that we all need. So Yeah. Well, and I'm glad that you framed it that way, Kurt, because it reminds me of the evolutionary basis of a lot of this, right? That I want to make sure that I've done enough good deeds to ensure that the tribe will take care of me and hunt for me when I can't. Right? When you break your leg, you're not going to be left behind. You're going to be taken, taken care, care of. of. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and so that need for significance and being seen is really important to us. Uh, it, it's cast deep in our, in our DNA. I'd like to just spend a minute maybe on the polarization and tribalism, if we could, right? Because the way Michelle and talked about it, it's like this idea that we're over-indexing on the extremes. And it's not that it doesn't exist. It does, you know, uh, that that's real. But we hear, from, she reminded us that we hear from just this relatively small number of people with extreme views that get amplified in the media. Yeah. And that's like, wow, like how many people when I'm on Twitter or X, whatever, how many people are writing things that are just absolutely crazy? Yeah. On, on regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, that are just writing these just incredibly extreme things, and it's a pretty small number of people. And and I started looking at that after after our conversation, and it's like, hmm, I think that it's worth kind of considering. This a small number of sources. Well, it's a small number of sources that get amplified because of their extremeness. This goes yeah, back. Right. So we're recording this in mid-November, the, the grooving session part of this. And just in the past few days, I don't know, Tim, if you've seen this, this uh, a letter to America, which I don't know if you've, you've, have you heard about this? No, no, this is new to me. So has been trending on TikTok. And okay. it's these people who are saying, I read this and it changed my mind. It's, you know, I didn't realize all of the stuff. And a letter to America is this two-page letter that bin Laden wrote. And these people are going about, oh, he's making sense because he talks about imperialism and different things. And there's a whole side we can talk about, like, why they don't know that America was an imperialistic country. Like, our education system obviously is letting them down in other ways. But, you know, it's like, but the the idea here is not that. It's this idea that they've gotten promoted by, because this is so extreme, it's so weird that all of a sudden it just kind of popped. And so the few people that might've thought about this to begin with, it could have just kind of stayed in that little sphere, but because some other people picked up on it, some media people are saying, look at how deranged these kids are today because they are you know, promoting that Bin Laden is saying all these great things and kind of bringing up that whole aspect that it all of a sudden expanded well beyond that initial reach. It's the idea that we've talked about before, that conspiracy theory person that we used to have in every town that was just the one crazy guy in town. Right. 
Right. But because of the power of the internet, that that one crazy guy, you know, meets up with the other crazy guy, and I'm saying they're guys because mostly they are. The, yeah. And the other crazy guy, and all of a sudden you get ten thousand crazy guys that are coming to a convention on the flat Earth. You right, know? <laughs> right, and yet it's within a population of hundreds of millions, billions, and billions. We have right. seven the, plus it, billion people on this Earth. I was thinking of just the United States, but if you if you go outside, of, it's right. If you got seven plus billion people, and you've got a convention where, and by the way, I think the flat earthers only had like a you know five or six hundred people actually show up. <laughs> but this, it seems like it's a big convention, and they're all so happy because they're together and they're forming their tribe. But they're a speck. They're just a grain of sand on the beach when it comes to to the the their relative significance in the world, and yet their views get outsized because of the media. Yes. And I just, that piece that you talked about, you know, this idea that Michelle brings in is that we're over-indexed on the extremes. I think that is, you know, that we focus on the most radical ends of each side. Who gets the news about our politics, right? We hear both sides of the politics. We hear about um, Boebert and Green and yeah. uh, who's the other crazy guy on the right that are uh, just Matt Gates? Yeah, that are just way off there. And then on the left, we hear about uh, my, you know, Omar and AOC, yeah, and right. you know, those are Tlaib. those are at the ends of both spectrums. And in right. the middle, it's not nearly that. And that's politics, which is the part where I'm going crazy. And yet. Only about 40% of Americans vote. Or 60%. Me, 40, 60% of Americans vote. So yeah. 40% don't vote. It's like, wow. We're not going to get into all the reasons why people vote or don't vote. But it's it's troublesome that we over-index, as, as you just said. I'm cautionary when I think about over-indexing on this stuff. The other thing about this, you said this letter to America. You know, my, my very first question is authenticity. In some ways, I'm looking for some kind of validation that, it actually came from and was written by the source that is they're claiming. Yeah, you know, but that's that, 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 that's again, the skeptic in me. We have that's a whole another topic of conversation we can go in. Yeah, another thing that Michelle said that I thought was fascinating was this idea that it's much harder to confront neglect than to confront aggression. Yeah, and so the part where you talked about forty percent of Americans don't even vote. We can confront and we can index on those loudmouth people in Congress and the extremes out there, but it's that silent, as they said, the silent majority mm-hmm. that often gets overlooked and it's harder to evaluate, harder to create an understanding of what they're thinking and that part. It is. It, it, it's, it also blends into the way that we interpret things. And we're thinking, well, did I just misunderstand? Did, when when someone said something, it sounded like it was maybe a it, it it was sort of a backhanded jab, but I wasn't really sure. Speaking of things in the news, I'm thinking about this commission versus omission. This idea of confronting neglect versus confronting aggression. You know, if if someone claims that they were done wrong by someone else, and the and and the person who is accused says, no, that that wasn't me. That I didn't do that. If we don't have any sort of just regular rational authenticity and accountability, how can we, everyone is going to look passive in it. Everyone's going to look like they're, you know, it it wasn't me. I wasn't the problem. And I think that that's an issue that we kind of have to, that I wish was different in our world today. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. That was a, that was a rant. (laughs) (laughs) You get, you get to rant. I rant all the damn time. So you get your rant every once in a while. Let's talk about, intergenerational confrontation uh, with recognition for who I am. Yeah. So this is, this is really kind of just the need for recognition part two in my world. When Michelle referred to this book by uh, Jean Twinge uh, about Gen Z, and she said, and I think this is so amazing, that 30% of the young women in that generation, I think she was talking about Gen Z specifically, 30% of the young women that are Gen Z are bisexual or they self-identify as bisexual, and some may never have had sex, but that's their identity. As the father of a 13-year-old 
girl. I'm wondering how you feel about that. I think it's spot on. I think I mentioned that. I think uh, in the in the session, I, it might even be low, at least in you know where my daughter and her friends sit. When I think about you know looking at her friend set, that might even be a low number. And now we live in an urban area and go to a pretty progressive school system. So that is, you know, different than say rural Oklahoma possibly, but Mm -hmm. the younger generation has a different viewpoint on sexuality. And I think I talked about this, this idea that my son had a friend who one day making up names, one day was Rob and the next day was, you know, Roberta. And it didn't, Face him in the least. Right. Right. Where growing up for you or me, that would have been the talk of the town for years, if not months, you know? That's a great example of your son seeing that other person, of actually respecting them just for who they are literally in the moment. Yeah. And I, I think that, that that's kind of cool. You know, it it also reminds me of in the 1960s when the baby boomers were coming into their young adulthood, you know, teenagers, young adulthood, there was all this rebellion in the world, right? It was really across the whole world, but a lot of it in the United States. And they wanted, these younger people wanted a life that was different from their parents. And the older generations were like, no, you're doing it the wrong way. And the younger people were saying, no, you're doing it the wrong way. <laughs> and, and I feel like we, we could be coming to something that's kind of similar to that today. Aren't you a baby boomer, Tim? Uh, yes, I am. Yes, I am. I'm on the, I'm on the tail end, but yes, I am. <laughs> so you're saying, are you saying that you are in uh, I have to admit, problem? I, well, I have to absolutely take be accountable for it. And I'm part of that, part of that story. As Christina Bicchieri says, you know, your, your voice is part of the social norm. So. Yeah. I, I think it's really interesting what you said there, this idea that each generation is misunderstood. Each generation doesn't necessarily want to grow up to be their parents and their parents mm-hmm. are saying, you are doing things wrong. You're lazy. That, you know, there's the story of the, forget who it was, an old Roman statesman talking about the youth and how lazy they are. And so it's something that has been- 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. Yeah. So you're, this is not an, a new phenomena. In, there is research though that is showing that maybe- the brains of digital natives, people who have been growing up on uh, digital devices might have been rewired differently. So maybe there is something that is actually different. And obviously societies change, social norms change, expectations change, all of that happens. And so, you know, what I think, Michelle, in the big picture and what I want to leave listeners with is that in the words of the great statesman, uh, Martin Gore, <laughs> people sorry. are people. And so why should it be that you and I get along so awfully? And I can't understand what makes a man hate another man. Help me understand. Your Depeche Mode reference for the day. Nicely oh done. <laughs> but it's true. I think we need to understand people are people. And as Michelle said, we need to start seeing them. We need to start seeing them for who they are, not who we want them to be. And to accept that within boundaries, within there, there are, we have to have certain components within the world. And this is where it gets tricky. And this is where all the issues happen because my boundaries and your boundaries might be different. But, you know, as long as you're not hurting anybody else, as long as you're living a life to your fullest that is bringing some benefit to the world, it's the Dr. Seuss, you know, the snoozles with stars and the snoozles without stars or whatever. I'm sure I'm getting that wrong. But I, I, th- I think you're mixing books, but uh, <laughs> that that's okay. Yeah. And we've covered some pretty important elements here in our grooving session. Is there anything else 
that you want to cover right now? We could talk about Michelle's insights and her writings, but yeah, we, we've gone on too long probably already. We lost most of our listeners because it's just <laughs> you and me and we're ranting. So, yeah. Okay, so Gervers, when you think about the people that you disagree with, just keep this in mind. They're people striving for significance too. They're a lot, they're just a lot like you and our, our viewpoints shouldn't prohibit us from talking with each other. We think that Michelle's comments can help you better understand the people in your life, whether that be Gen Z, whether that be the boomers, if you're a Gen Zer, right? Um, loved ones, friends, coworkers, etc. We hope that these thoughts tag along with you this week and they help you as you go out and find your group.